0: For a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills,
1: he's got two things in his hand: pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new; they yeah. had been they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they build, I bet. No, <laughs> no. You know, you, I think they were. They had the the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. <laughs> Thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the boat. <laughs> and actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed bar wire fence. <laughs>
0: So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, where J.D. McDuffie, Jimmy Means, and Buddy Arrington will always be race winners in our book.
2: Absolutely. I could not agree with you more, Rick, But it wasn't for those guys, well... I don't think I'd be able to print as many stories as I had over the years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, Steve, I got to ask, have you come down off your high from last weekend? Because I was there, and that was just a very, very special event for you, for your family, and for your professional life.
2: Well, it was, Rick. No question about it. I was very humbled to be there, and it was very, very, how do you say it? Very surprised to get all the attention from people I hadn't seen in several years who were there. So it made it truly a special evening. main thing to me, though, is that after all these years, to receive an award like this indicates that somebody has appreciated your work over the years and recognizes it. And that's very great.
0: Now, Steve, in this episode, you and I both are going to be talking to Terry Labani. Right. That was a great interview. I had never quite seen him like that. I hadn't
2: either. It's remarkable, as he's aged, how much more open uh, he has been with the media. Because when he first came into the sport for several years, he wasn't. He was basically a guy with a one-word answer. Well, after our interview with him, it's obvious, and the listeners will agree, he has changed.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about him getting into the sport, his first win at Darlington, also, his 1984 Winston Cup championship. Then in our second segment, Steve, it has been 40 years this year since the just immortal 1979 Daytona 500. So we had to talk about it.
2: Oh, by all means. And I was there, and i tell you, it was quite a series of events that made up what I think is the most notable race in NASCAR's history.
0: Well, NASCAR's greatest race. Well, I, I, Come on now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mr. Arthur. <laughs> Let's not get too spun out uh, there, Bud.
2: <laughs> well, at the time, at that, the Okay, at okay, the, I'll give the, you that one. When okay. that race was completed, <laughs> the entire landscape of NASCAR changed. We first saw you in 1979 with Billy Hagen team. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, the, a year or so before, Billy had Skip Manning as his driver, and then all of a sudden, he's gone and you were
1: there. How did you and Billy Hagen ever hook up? Well, it was an interesting story. I was racing at a track in Houston, Texas, called Myers Speedway. And uh, we were leaving the points at Meyer Speedway, uh-huh. and we had lost an engine one week. The next weekend we didn't go because, you know, we didn't have our engine back together, and and uh so I was at home. Telephone rang. It was the track promoter. Got him. Ed Hamlin called, and uh, I just had to pick the phone up, and I uh, was talking to Ed. and He said, "Man, we missed you guys this past weekend. I wondered." Uh, you know what was going on, and, and I said, "Well, you know, we had engine trouble a week before, and we got it. My dad got it back together, and we'll be back up there this this Saturday night." And he said, "Well, good. I got somebody I want to introduce you to." I said, "Okay." He said, "Somebody might be able to help you help you out or something." I said, "Okay." So I told my dad, and we didn't uh, didn't really think much about it. You know, so we went on and went back to to the race that weekend. And we finished second that night, Saturday night, we finished second. And uh, after the race, Ed Hamlin, the promoter came down. And so they tore down the top three cars. After the race, the top guy wouldn't tear down. So, <laughs> we got we got the, the win, you know, like an hour after the race was over, you know, and they, the guy would ever tear down his car. So uh, anyway, he, uh, he had this guy with him and introduced us to him, and it was Billy Hagan, And so Billy was there that night that I, finished second on the track, but actually won the race. Yeah, and, uh, and so Billy worked at a deal with the track promoter and so he started sponsoring my late model car. And the deal was kind of unusual because what they would do is they would just guarantee me first place money every night, didn't matter where I finished. And then he would buy me tires on any race that was over a hundred lap or, or hundred laps or more, he'd buy me a set of tires. Right. And then he sent us engine parts too that was left over from their cup team, so so he sponsored my late model down there for a couple of years, and so we raced in Houston and San Antonio. We won the championship in Houston, and then we won the championship in San Antonio. And then he called me one day, and he says, "Ask me if." And of course, we knew that that he had uh, you know the cup team and everything. So he wanted to uh, know if I wanted to move to North Carolina and you know run some cup races. So that's kind of how it started, through a track promoter in Houston, Texas, Hmm. got him Ed Hamlin, and us blowing up an engine and not going to the race that weekend. I mean, if we would have gone to the race that weekend, he'd probably figured, well, maybe they don't need any help or something, you know. And that's kind of how it started. It was just really being at the right place. At the right time,
2: and when you got to Carolina, didn't you
1: just basically work for Benny rather I,
2: than drive?
1: I did, I yeah. did, and I uh, he wanted me to come up here. He said, "Let's." Uh, he said, "Why don't you just go to all the all the tracks, be part of the team here, kind of get it figured out, and then later in the year we'll run uh, a second car and run uh, five races." So I said, "Okay," and so I was like, "Oh God, Skip was a little tough to work for," you know. Uh, there were a lot of people that went in, came in, came through the shop there. Not a lot of numbers, you know, because they didn't have the five or six people right. that worked on a team back then. But it was constantly a revolving door, you know, people coming and going. And so it finally got down to just me and him. <laughs> and uh, and he had figured out who I was. Billy's wife saw me at the races one night. And she said, oh, that's Terry, you know, that dropped the late model. And so Skip found out about it. and he didn't particularly care for me after that. Mm. And uh, so I stuck it out there. And, and uh, so Skip comes in one day and he says, hey, uh, Billy's going to sell the team and sell everything. We need to take an inventory and all that. I said, okay, whatever. So I told my dad, I said, hey, I guess I'm coming home. I think, I think you're going to sell the team and all that stuff. So I uh, I helped Skip get all the inventory together. Inventory, every bent piece of whatever he kept, he still had right. <laughs> every used part. He still had, you know, we had just sheets of used parts that were no good. And, uh, you know, we had 14 cases of oil and all kinds of stuff. So we inventoried the whole deal. And, uh, so I went home that night and my phone rang. It was Billy. And he said, Hey, I'm not going to sell the team. He said, I just want to get that list of all the parts. And we had. <laughs> I said, okay. He said, you go back down there tomorrow and get the keys from skip. And, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll tell him tomorrow, and I went, like, oh, God, this is going to really good. I'm, like, 21 years old. Like, this guy's, like, yeah. 40. He's, gonna, he's not going to be happy, you know. And uh, so, as it turned out, Skip gave me the keys, and he said, uh, here you go. Out the door he went. And and then, uh, I guess the next day, Darrell Bryant came up, and we got a car ready to go to Darlington. It was for the first race. Right. So.
0: Now, had you ever actually seen
1: a cup track before you went to Darlington? I went to Daytona. Uh, I think it was nineteen. It was the year Benny Parsons won it. Yeah, seventy-five. Okay. Right. I went to Daytona in nineteen seventy-five. Benny Parsons won the race, With my dad and a uh, couple of, of his friends, and we camped out in a motorhome in the infield. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. 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 It was crazy, man. It was. It was. Yeah. It was kind of fun, actually, guys. I was at that time. I was probably only. Well, gosh, I don't know. That's eighteen years old, yes, yeah. <laughs> no. okay. I guess. Okay, Im- sure, yeah. here's the important question:
0: How much of that weekend do you
1: remember? I don't remember a lot of it. We, we, uh, we, I, I, uh, I really probably don't want to talk about some of that because I don't want my mom to know where we went. So, <laughs> so you go to Darlington, nineteen seventy-eight
0: Southern Five Hundred. <laughs> you finish fourth. Yeah. Eleven laps
1: back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And the top six finishers all wound up in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Well, how about that? Kelly Yarborough won. Darrell Waltrip was second. Richard Petty, third. You, fourth. Bobby Allison, fifth. And Bill
1: Elliott, sixth. Yeah, well, yeah.
0: What do you remember about that day?
1: I remember the biggest thing I remember about that day. It was the longest race I'd ever run in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept looking at the scoreboard. I thought, how much longer did this thing go, you know? And I look at the scoreboard and uh, – And I'd look at the laps. I I never never even thought about looking at my car number. Never even thought, never even dawned on me. I had no idea idea where I was running. (laughs) We just raced all afternoon. And uh, finally it was over and uh, I finished fourth. I said, "I looked at the scoreboard. I said, yeah, how about that? You know, it was like that. I didn't, you know, that was like, uh, it was like crazy, man. Let me tell you something about that first race, the first Darlington race. When I went down there, I had to go to the rookie meeting, you know, and then they had a rookie test back then mm-hmm. We you had to pass a rookie test. And so you'd have to go out there and, and uh, you'd run, you know, 10 or 15 laps by yourself right. around the track, and there'd be somebody watching you and judging you, I guess. And uh, I don't know if anybody ever failed it, but, you know, yeah. but, they, but they would do that. And then you couldn't qualify the first day if you were right. You had to qualify the second day. Second day. And uh, so we qualified the second day. But in that... Rookie meeting, I went in there, and you remember Darlington was just, it was like, I mean, that was the oldest, most run-down facility that I would ever been to. I mean, it was worse than some short tracks you'd go to. (laughs) And uh, we were sitting in this room, and it had this old TV in it and some kind of tape machine. I don't know, it was before VCR, I think. And they showed the highlights of the previous year's Southern 500, okay? Hmm. Here's what you don't do. You don't enter the pits this way off the racetrack. You don't exit the pits this way off the racetrack. When the cost, when you get the move over flag, you move over. All this stuff. And the car I was driving was car number 92 that was driven the year before, and it looked the same. It was a, the same car. And <laughs> I'm sitting there watching this video, and the car I was driving was in every highlight of the <laughs> of things not to do and, I, and so i sat there and i just sunk down on the couch and went oh my god i, I can remember kelly arbor was in there he was kind of the guy you know that i guess he was a previous champion yeah he was in there and i just sat there i went oh my god and so i got it i went back down to the to the hauler there and or to the garage area and so we said, "Well, how'd that go?" I said, "Well, it good. I learned one thing: don't make next year's video. <laughs> next thing, whatever you do, don't make yeah. next year's video because they will show it in that room." And uh, but that was uh, that was like, "Oh God, I cannot believe this." <laughs> fast forward to the nineteen eighty yeah. Southern Five Hundred,
2: yeah. and you're in the running most of the day. Yeah, uh, and yeah. it turns out at the end uh, there were like three guys ahead of you. Yeah that yep. got them to an incident caused by the oil on the track that yeah. Frank Warren.
1: Yeah. Yeah, tell us that. Yeah. We came down late in the race. It was, well, we were coming for, uh, I guess it was two laps to go. And we went all down in turn one. And uh, I can remember that David was, Pearson was leading the race. Right. And he got in the wall. Benny Parsons, Earnhardt, I think they all got in the wall. Neil Bonnet and I made it through there. And I thought, well... And Neil was lap down, Mm -hmm. and uh, and I made it through there. And I thought, well, we must have been, or I must have been around the wrong line because I didn't hit any oil. (laughs) And so, uh, and I saw it. David had bounced off the wall, and so went down the back straightaway. And it was just he was just far enough ahead of me. I went through three and four, just you know, up to speed, like I didn't uh, had my momentum up. And he came off a four, and I don't think he probably ever saw me coming. And I just dove down on the inside, and I beat him to the white flag so it was a white and caution so the race was basically race. the a like, I made it back you know? I to tell you how the reaction was in the press box <laughs> it was
0: probably like
2: <laughs> we all saw you make that pass on uh-huh. David right and there was dead silence in the press box <laughs> I'm sure silence <laughs> all of a sudden this voice from the back of the press, the press box comes up and says boys I think Terry the bunny just won the race <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right Gene Granger I don't know if yeah, you
1: yeah, yeah. Gene
0: yeah, Granger yeah. wrote a column about you in the July nineteenth, nineteen seventy nine issue of Grand National Scene about some of the superstitions.
1: Yeah, that you had. Yeah, I don't like green. No like thirteen. And
0: now, does that still hold true?
1: Yeah, I still don't like thirteen. <laughs> but uh, but uh, and then green, I didn't like green until I ran the Kellogg's car had green on it. Well, yeah, championships so yeah. as well. Okay.
0: Now he told a story in that column where. You were on your way to Nashville, I think, and there was evidently
1: a stretch of of green green. tinted highway. Yeah, It was. And you wouldn't. No, I got off the road. Yeah, I was (laughs) never going to drive down that. (laughs) If I ever went somewhere and checked out, like, if I was buying something, you know, and it ended with 13, like 313, 513, where I'd buy something else. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want it to end in 13. Now, where'd that come from? I have no idea. Really? Don't know. Don't have no idea. Just. Well.
2: Race drivers being superstitious is nothing new. It's like, yeah, you don't you don't eat peanuts at the track. I was gonna say that. Yeah, and yeah. Then it's like
0: now a new one that I hadn't heard before. You didn't like for anybody to take a picture of your car. You can't
1: take a picture of a car before you are racing. Yeah, yeah, because you tear it one. up. Yeah. That was a one. Yep, yeah. that was and that yeah, that was from a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, but I
2: remember a couple of us thinking, you know, we need to learn something about this guy, especially after you won uh, at Darlington in the Southern 500, and uh, that is a, a great achievement. We didn't know who the heck he is, you know. No one knew you were from Corpus Christi. No one knew you had a relationship with uh, Billy Hagan. No one knew a darn thing. I remember doing an interview with I don't remember all the questions and answers we got through do remember, though, an interview with you back then took a little bit of prodding.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't say that. that
2: was pretty quiet back then. Okay. But you know, I said to myself, to you, rather, I said, do you envision yourself being among the ranks of these guys? And you said back to me, oh, yeah, those guys have got to retire sometime.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: now, you win the Southern 500, you kinda of get your feet under you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then you go to Talladega the next year mm-hmm. and that's one of the most memorable finishes. Oh yeah, we finished second. You you and, DW, you and DW You and DW were basically running. you know yeah. We had it wrong. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. gonna
1: be between me yeah. and him. And then
0: here comes this kid, Bouchard, Ron Bouchard. Yeah. Yeah. What do you remember about that?
1: Well he wasn't a kid, he was older than I He was but but, uh, but I had been to Talladega, and i would come been in that last lap deal a few times. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I don't know where to, I'm not sure how to do this. I'm not sure where I need to be. So I thought, I'm going to be in second place here because that's where I want to be. I'm yeah, going yeah. to try to yeah. slingshot past Darrell here. Of course, Talladega is different. Start finish line yeah. you know, it's not in the middle of the travel. So I tried to pass Darrell, and he's blocking me and run me way up the racetrack, and and, and about that time, I looked over. There's this yellow 47 comes by us, and after the race, Daryl and I just we pull up beside each other in the back straight and just looked <laughs> like, like what the hell I there? You know? so, I knew he was back there, but there wasn't nothing I could do about him. I was just trying to pass, you know, Daryl. So, uh, yeah. but it was uh, it was a good finish.
2: Well, your your career is advancing nicely. 1981 to 1984. You're finishing the top five in points. You're winning with uh, three different crew chiefs before or two mm. before 1984. Yeah. Daryl Bryant, and Jake Elder, yeah, and then in 1984, the championship season, <laughs> here's Dale Inman. What was it like with the three of them? How were they different? How were they the same? Oh God, they were
1: they were completely different. <laughs> I mean, completely different. Uh, Daryl was a crew chief and one won my first race. In mm-hmm. And and there and you know back then racing was different. I mean, it was just. It was just different, you know? And uh, you. we had a small team, small crew. Daryl was a crew chief there. He was a crew chief for my first pole position and the first win. And uh, and then Jake Elder, he was our crew chief for uh, uh, a year and a half maybe or something like that. I think he joined us in like 81 and left in 82, the end of 82. We finished third in the points that year. Yeah. And uh, we didn't win a race. But we finished second, I don't know how many times. And uh, finished, had a bunch of top fives. I mean, really just, we should have won. You know, just we're right there knocking on the door. And then uh, Dale Inman joined our team at the end of 82. And I had gotten hurt at Riverside, California yeah. that last race of the year. And uh, so when I, I got that, got yeah. back to, uh, back, you know, where go back to the shop again you know dale had been there for a while and and uh and we kind of got off to a slow start really kind of got off to a slow start and uh kind of took uh took us it took us half half the year to really kind of get a handle on things you know because you know the setups were different the cars were a little different and things like that and it's so the second half of the year we really started improving and and getting much better and then we won the race at Rockingham, and. Uh, and then the next year we rolled over to '84, and I mean we just came out strong from the start. You know, it was just one of those years we just we just had a fantastic year and ran good, you know, a lot of times. And uh, then wound up and had a lot of top fives, and a lot of top tens, and uh, I think we had several second places that year, and uh, you know a couple wins, and uh, ended up winning the championship. But I will tell you, we back up a, little bit with a funny story when I won the first race at Darlington down there in 1980. Yeah we have got to go to the press box. Well, I've never been to the press box before, you know. So we're sitting up there at the press in the press box at Darlington. So I'm sitting there, you know, people ask me a couple questions, and I'd answer them. And, and Billy was sitting there, and they'd ask him a couple of questions. And he said, well, he said, he's talking about the team or whatever. And and uh, he said, well, I predict that uh, in five years we'll win a championship. Hmm. And I thought to myself, we just won our first race. <laughs> No pressure there. He'd led one lap. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to win a championship in five years. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, okay. You know, looking back, I thought, well, he's a lot smarter than I was. You know, you know he had a plan, and uh, you know, he, he he had a plan, and uh, you know, he hired uh, hired hired Jake there, And then he hired yeah hired Dale Lemon, which you know, when you got when you got Dale Lemon, the guy's won, you know, uh, eight championships now. You know, yeah. counting uh, yeah counting the one he won with us, so. The thing that impressed me so much about Dale Inman, unlike most of them, Mm -hmm. and the reason I say that, is is Dale, I'm gonna say is not an expert on anything. You know what I mean? He's not a, there's not any one thing that he is is truly a specialist on. But he knows a lot about everything. Mm -hmm. And he would always try to have the best people in every position that he could around him and, right. and he went at, and he worked hard to surround himself with the best people and he was one of the few crew chiefs i think that i've ever seen that had enough confidence in himself that he wasn't worried about having people around him that were very successful yeah. and yeah. uh and because i mean he didn't have nothing to prove you know and he knew that surrounding himself with good people was just going to make him better right and look better and uh and that really taught me a lot, I think, about other things. You know, you always got to surround yourself with the best people you can right. in business or, or racing or whatever. And uh, But that's what Dale did so good, I think, was he would have really, really good people that helped him. Right. And he could look over their shoulder and it didn't take long. He, he could tell you if you knew what you were doing or not. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. You had a good 84 season. You were in contention
2: for the championship almost all the way. Yep. And you won it by finishing
1: third at yep. Riverside. That's right. What was that like for you? Well, you know, it was, it was uh, we went to Riverside and we won the pole. Won the, won the pole. Back then you had, you know, got five points for leading a lap. And uh, so starting from the pole position, that was going to be an advantage. For us, we felt like we could hopefully lead a lap and get the five extra points. And then as it turned out, the race started under caution because the track was wet and Mm. rain that morning. And so we had the five points there because they ran 10 laps under caution before they threw the green. And then late in the race, we were uh, racing hard at the end and uh, because we had won the the June race out there. Right. And uh, we had a really good really good car and good setup for riverside and, and uh so we were racing really hard at the end i think it was bobby allison and jeff bodine and uh, uh tim richmond i guess and i don't remember There was four or five of us that were you know running pretty good there and and i remember dale lemon coming on the radio and he says it's about 10 laps ago he said okay terry you are run you're running third and harry's running ninth we just you know <laughs> Make sure you don't run off the course. That's about all he said, you know. That's all he said. And I knew what he was saying, you yeah. know. And so I just eased back and I said, okay, uh, you know, he's probably right. And I don't need to get in the middle of this mess here because we could all three wreck or something. And uh, we, we, we won the championship. So. For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom, That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families.
3: Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go
1: to victoryjunction.org.
0: Now, Steve, we touched on it briefly in the intro to this episode, but Terry was much more open and talkative in this interview than you and I did here at your house. As a matter of fact, I'll be honest with you when i was at scene and you or deb or whoever it was was in the press box when they would call a terry labani sidebar and i would have to do it i know how you felt i I kind (laughs) of dreaded it because not because i didn't like terry but if you didn't know a lot about what had went on in his race that day you know you'd go up to him and you'd say hey man good race today and he'd go yep (laughs) and that's it and that was it And so you hoped that his crew chief Gary DeHart, was a little bit more talkative that day, so you could get enough for your story.
2: I understand he was he was that way from the first day that he came into the sport. Uh, I remember talking to him way back in uh, nineteen eighty. I think the year he won his first race. You know, uh, obviously uh, this kid deserved a feature story, and I determined I was going to go out and write it. But it was it was. Difficult because he just was not used to that attention at all. And he was very, very reticent because he did not know how to really handle the press or deal with the press. Now, I got a few good quotes out of him. This story wasn't what I really wanted in terms of saying we got a rising star on our hands because he did, he just shrugged his shoulders. You know, he said the only thing I can say about being a rising star is them guys that got to retire sometime, <laughs> and that was his best line.
0: Now I don't want listeners to get out of this that were criticizing Terry in any shape, form, or fashion because while he was very soft-spoken, he wasn't unfriendly ever. Steve, the simple fact of the matter is. That was just his personality. Exactly. That was who he was. And I think the best
2: description of who he was came from his wife, Kim. Because years ago, I went up to her one time and I said, look, why doesn't Terry talk? And she said, he doesn't have anything to say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that makes sense. Well, you know, that hasn't stopped a lot of people in this sport. (laughs) True. (laughs) True. Now, Steve, another awesome story that I found in the pages of Grand National Scene, July 19th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene, a Gene Granger column talked about Terry's very, very, very superstitious ways. Oh, yeah. And that was a kind of a surprise because it went so far as to say that between Knoxville and Nashville on I-40 there was a stretch and I know it well there's a stretch of highway that was at the time green tinted huh i didn't know that and terry would not drive on it he got on the emergency lane and drove until basically everybody else in the car said hey you know you got to <laughs> cut that out kim included i bet kim was the co-pilot yeah
2: i, I agree with him on that one that's green uh, the color green has always been Uh, subject of superstition in NASCAR, don't really know why. But after a few years, uh, I was on the sport. After a few years, uh, it was not so much the color green for most drivers because all of a sudden,
0: green cars started showing up. Yeah, you had Daryl Waltrip in the Gatorade car. There you go. You had Harry Gantt in the Skull Bandit car. And then when Terry went to Hendrick Motorsports, the car wasn't entirely green, but But there was green on it.
2: No doubt about it. And each of those guys was very successful in a green car. So green became somewhat passe.
0: Peanuts. He would eat peanuts. Don't know where that came from. To
2: be honest with you, Rick, I don't know a driver to this day who eats peanuts, especially at a racetrack. And more important, never in a car.
0: The color green is kind of a standard superstition. Peanuts in NASCAR is kind of a standard superstition. But Terry also talked about not wanting anybody to take a picture of his car until he had actually raced it. That was a new one on me.
2: Yeah, I haven't heard that one either. You know, a lot of drivers have routines and beliefs, even to this day, of things they want to happen, things they don't want to happen. Like, for example, some of them just don't want to be bothered before a race. They just hide themselves away in a motorhome until the time to come out. And others do the opposite. They feel they have to communicate and talk with their crewman and their crew chief to get the final summation of what the going to happen that day before they get in the car. So things are individually based in superstitions.
0: Steve, do you have any superstitions? Well, I
2: can't say as I do, but I do have one habit that you might just call superstitious. Uh, I have... Uh, I carry my folding money around in a money clip. Yeah. Braggart. <laughs> <I laughs> you just say, can't hide money, can you? I <laughs> say how much. But when I fold that money up and put it in the clip, I have to start with the higher denominations and then put the lower denominations on top so that when I fold it, the lower denominations are the one you see. And the higher denominations are deep in the fold. Now, I'll take my money out, stop somewhere, and reshuffle it if it's not that way. So so I don't know if that is superstitious or not, but maybe it's just a stupid habit.
0: (laughs) I had a couple of, I don't know that I would call them superstitions, but I had habits. Kind of like what you're talking about. Every time I went to Daytona, before I went to the hotel to check in, before I went to the racetrack, I always had to eat at the Olive Garden in Ormond Beach. When I went to Talladega, I always had to eat at the same Chinese restaurant in Oxford. Hmm. And in my mind, as long as I didn't deviate from that pattern, nobody got hurt at the racetrack.
2: Oh, I didn't realize that.
0: That was a thing with me.
2: I can tell you that over the years, there are restaurants at various racetracks that I just always frequented. Never felt right if I didn't go and at least have one dinner at these restaurants. But, man, it wasn't anything like you're talking about.
0: Now, Steve, let's move on to Terry's first win at Darlington. He had come on the NASCAR scene in 78. He had had his rookie year in 79. And he gets to Darlington and is running fourth late in the race in the Southern 500. And basically all heck breaks loose.
2: Yeah, toward the end of the race, uh, Frank Warren, I think, blew an engine. And then Dale Earnhardt and David Pearson got into it and spun. And they weren't the only ones to get involved. Uh, Benny Parsons also spun. And Labonte, as he told us in the interview was able to run David Pearson down and pass him like he described.
0: Now, another thing that I think is interesting is the fact that David Pearson had won the Southern 500 the year before in 1979 driving in relief of an injured Dell Earnhardt, who was a rookie at that time for team owner Rod Osterlund. So they come back the very next year, and Dell Earnhardt is right on David Pearson's bumper with a couple of laps to go. How badly? Do you think Dale wanted to beat David after what had happened oh, the year before? Are you
2: kidding me? Uh, Dale for sure wanted to win that race, and he wanted to beat Pearson probably more than anything. Not out of any vindictiveness, but just to say, hey, you know, you took my car and won it. Now I'm going to take this car and beat you in it and just basically return the favor or that that had to be a major inspiration for Dale during that race but unfortunately fate stepped in and neither one of them won the race and Dale ultimately crashed
0: now in the press box after that race you have Terry giving his post-race interview car owner Billy Hagan is up there and all of a sudden Billy Hagan announces that his grand plan is that Terry's going to win the championship within 5 years now what do you reckon Terry's response was
2: uh Probably somewhat encouraging. I'm sure that he liked the fact that his team owner thought enough of him to say that they could win a championship together. But you have to understand something up in the press box: wise skepticism, because oh, yeah. Billy Hagen yeah. was new to the scene and he was he, he was essentially an outsider. Even though he's from the South, he wasn't from the Carolinas, and he had no proven record other than Terry's first win of any success. In NASCAR, so how could he step up and say that he was going to win a championship with Terry within five years? Come on, man,
0: we're not going to buy that. As it turns out, Billy Hagan was wrong. It didn't. It didn't take him five years. <laughs> <laughs> it took him four years. It took, him four years. <laughs> it took him four years. Steve, how important was Dale Inman in that championship run? Had to be extremely
2: important. Uh, we all know Dale today is one of the greatest crew chiefs. In NASCAR history, he ended up with Terry Labonte in 1984. You take his his experience and his racetrack savvy and his knowledge. I mean, this is a guy who's been doing this almost from the start of NASCAR, and he brings all that wealth of knowledge and experience and talent to Billy Hagan. I mean, it's got to help Terry, particularly if Terry's smart enough to listen to him and the team is willing to do what he says. It's got to be a tremendous help.
0: And Terry's nickname would eventually become the Iceman because he was not the type of driver who was going to go out and tear up his equipment just for the sake of tearing it up, just for the sake of passing one more car before the end of the race. He was very cool and very calculated in right. the way that he drove.
2: Right. He was not a Yard bro. No. You no. Know, he was more of a David Pearson. They didn't call David Pearson the Silver Fox for nothing. You know, he was a very calculating, uh, strategic driver. And Terry fit that same
0: mold. Steve, in next week's segment of the interview with Terry Labonte, he's going to start off with a story about this championship season that really reminds me of Rada Aussterland in 1980 and also Furniture Row. Exactly. And I am
2: pleased to say I'm the one Terry first told that story to.
3: I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast.
0: Steve, first of all, I cannot believe that it has been 40 years since the 1979 Daytona 500.
2: Time flies. I'm telling you the truth. Make me
0: feel old. That's the first NASCAR race that I was ever aware of because I remember watching, if not all the race, I remember watching part of the race. And then the very next week, there was a Tank McNamara comic strip in the Sunday papers devoted to the 1979 Daytona 500. And if there was a Sunday morning comic devoted to an event, you knew it was big.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Let me sort of set this scenario here for you. That race was the first one that was going to be broadcast live flag to flag by CBS, a major network.
0: The first 500 mile. Exactly. Oh, oh, yeah. Exactly.
2: So that was big doings, and uh, there was a lot of buildup to that race, and uh, uh, CBS did a lot of creative things to make it different than anyone had ever seen. But the most important thing was there was a massive snowstorm yeah. in the northeast, yeah. and people were just housed in. They could not leave their homes, and one by one, they each decided, well, Let's see what this NASCAR stuff is all about. And, man, they got an eyeful.
0: And this was before cable TV. This was before satellite TV. So there wasn't a million options to choose from. You had CBS, ABC,
2: ABC, maybe a a public network, and that was about it.
0: You had at the outside four choices, and that day— The choice was the 1979 Daytona 500. Now, something I want to do, Steve, is I want to play this clip of an interview that I did with Bobby Allison about this race.
4: It was a pretty good race. I had won the year before, but it wasn't quite as strong for the funnier year. But I was up front front with Bud Morris and Thunderbird, you know, and and able to draft pretty good and all. But Donnie and Taylor and I got in a spin out somewhere fairly early in the race coming off of turn two. And Taylor and I both lost a couple laps getting stuck in the mud there and Donnie got, got going and you know, got back to the lead of the race pretty quick and was the dominant car all day hey, Hill could draft him but he could not pass him but Twice, they had a caution flag, and when Donnie was back off for the, for the yellow light, uh, Kale would beat him back to the line and get the lap back. And Donnie actually thought he was a, more than two laps ahead of Kale. And then all of a sudden, right there at the end, he's racing Kale. He still had a dominant car, but Kale could draft him. And then on the last lap, he bought a kill, bumped him to you know, try to make him lose some traction, and, and Donnie wiggled, and Kale dove under him, and they got together, and, you know, they crashed down the back straightaway, and, you know, the deal that happened, I wasn't anywhere near You know, my crew, they radioed me that they were really racing hard, and to give them plenty of room if they got to me, but I was a couple of hours behind. But, you know, I of them on the track by probably a quarter of a mile. You know, I'm coming through, uh, I guess, coming off of two, and the caution comes out. And, you know, I see this crash down there. As I slowed down, but I, my job is to finish the race. I'm coming around for the checker flag, you know. so I I went back and I, I went by and saw that Donnie was getting out of his car, and so I knew he wasn't hurt bad. So I went on and finished the race, came back around and stopped, out closer to Donnie's car. You know, they were probably 50, 75 feet apart on the over, on the apron, with uh, Donnie being closer, you know, tail he, uh, being further on around the track, and so I stopped kind of parallel to Donnie's car and yelled, that he want to ride back to the garage area? You know, he said no. And, of course, Keo started yelling that the wreck was my fault. You know, I wouldn't be my fault. You know, Keo was always a little tough guy, and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a tough guy. And so Keo was going to come over and take his frustration out on me. And my version of it, which I'm sure you've heard lots of times, is uh, Keo yelled that the wreck was my fault. And, and I questioned his ancestry, and uh, he ran toward me but then stopped 10, 12 feet out from the car and yelled some more, which kill was, during that period of time, Kill would go to a driver's meeting and he'd yell at Buddy Baker or yell at Richard Petty or whoever happened to have annoyed him the, the week before, and it was, was kind of his nature, and, you know, I thought he was going to stand there and yell, I guess. I suppose I questioned his ancestry a little further. Had his helmet in his hand and he lunged at me and hit me in the face with his helmet. And, you know, I looked down and some blood was dripping in my lap. He had my nose and cut my lips and it hurt. And I was stunned and, and shocked and I said to myself, I gotta get out of the car and handle this right now or run from him the rest of my life. Climbed out of the car, and, and uh, you know, we had a little scuffle there. Now, a lot of the pictures see Donnie with his helmet in the air. Well, Donnie's saying to Kale, I got a helmet too if you want to fight with helmets. But Donnie and Kale never passed any blows. I'm saying, you know, uh, Kale and I did the, uh, yeah, a little bit of wrestling around there. The safety crews got over there and got it separated and everything. It proved to the world that we were sincere. Not i thought a lot about that. Uh, you know, there's some more that goes with my part of the story, NASCAR fined us $6,000 apiece. I had finished 11th in the Daytona 500 and my part of the winnings was only $4,000. And so I had to get a check from Hewetown, Alabama to pay my. the rest of my fine, which was somewhere around $2,000 so that I could race the next week. Because the rule was, if you didn't pay your fine, you couldn't race the next week's race at Rockingham. Got my check from from Hewetown. When we were good boys for a few weeks. NASCAR refunded the prize money withheld. Think about that. It means they never gave me my $2,000 personal check back. I still don't have it today. The event was uh, a pretty good event, but the event had a fairly captive audience all over the you know, the eastern United States and then probably a little further even, you know, because of the weather situation. It was a fairly interesting event. Nothing else would have a good show for a, for a Sunday race and it was the first flight to flag coverage which was really significant. So it had a lot of things that made it be so attractive to so many people and so beneficial to NASCAR.
0: Another clip that I want to share is with Chip Warren and that's not a name that a lot of people would know but Chip was the flag man. For the nineteen seventy nine Daytona five hundred, Steve he had the best seat in the house by far.
2: I'm sure that he has his own version of what he saw.
3: It was- drizzling rain that morning. Mr. France Sr. in the driver's meeting told the guys that he needed every bit of help from them that he could get. Otherwise, it'd be racing for half the person on Monday. So CBS had said, okay, we're going to do it. We've got one shot. There's no coming back tomorrow. There's no place on the schedule to put it as far as the TV schedule. So today's your day. It was drizzling rain, misting. It was not bad. We didn't have jet blowers, so we had all the emergency vehicles and everything else that we could get to ride around to get the racetrack drive, and I'll never forget, I always thought Mr. France Sr. was pretty well connected, but uh, I went to the flag stand. We had gone up in the flag stand. We were anticipating a start still, just a little bit of mist, but I could hear Mr. France on the radio, and he was over towards Ormond Beach somewhere, Holly Hill over in that area, riding around. Jim Bokhoven was over in the op- direction, and they were talking to each other on the radio, and Mr. France says said, I'm, I'm over here at Holly Hill. I, I've got some sunshine over here. And Maki related his location, which was in the complete opposite direction. He said, well, I've got some sunshine over here. And I'll never forget, Mr. France says, well, you bring your sunshine, and I'll bring mine, and I'll meet you at the tunnel. And I could see the tunnel from the flag stand. And I remember that Cadillac coming up out of that tunnel. It, it's like the sky just opened up. The sun started shining. And it just sent cold chills all over me. I said, man, this this man's got something here. I was getting kind of excited because I knew he was going to have one hell of a finish. I, I just didn't know uh, how much of a finish it was going to be. Richard was pretty much out of the picture and it was going to be Kale or Donnie. They come by, I gave him the white flag and they were side by side when I gave him the white flag and I thought, boy, this is going to be fun. And uh, little did I know just how much fun it was going to be. Back then, I could see the entire racetrack from the flag stand. Oh yeah, I could see it all. I watched them go off into one and round through one and two and come off two and Donnie was on the outside and he just kept easing down and easing down and easing down and I finally ran Kale down in the grass so it was grass back then uh, down the back stretch on the inside they hadn't, they hadn't paved any of that runoff area back there like they have today but he just kept running him down, the, down to the grass and finally Kale had gone as far as he was going to go and so he started coming back Actually, when he came back, they got tangled up. Both of them spun up into the Turn 3 wall, come down, got out of their cars, and headed towards each other, and about that time, it dawned on me, hey, the race is not over. I would gotten so involved in watching that, I said, oh, Lord, I don't want to miss on the checker. And I knew Richard was third. I wasn't real sure where he was on the racetrack at that particular time. The instant that I realized that uh, I still had to throw the checkered flag, and I was looking over there towards the melee that was going on, uh, I saw Richard go by. It was in the STP car, and it was quite visible. I saw him go by, and it was I can remember having such a big sigh of relief because I had to screw up our big chance on national TV. so then I was able to wave the flag on Richard. All in all, it was just a really good day. I don't think any of us
0: that were involved understood the significance of what it would lead to. I really felt it important that I share this clip of Chip's interview because he did pass away a couple of years ago due to cancer. And Chip, when I got to know him, he was a Bush Series official. I just loved going back and forth with him. He would tease me and I would tease him back in the video of the 1979 Daytona 500, when they would show the flag stand, Steve, it was like Elvis was still around because he had the full-on Elvis hair, you know, he had that style waving that flag, you know. And so I loved busting Chip's chops about that.
2: You know, Chip was a very familiar figure on the cup circuit as well during that time, and he was one of those friendly, outgoing guys that everybody liked. And I also admired his style on the flag stand. Not only did it look like Elvis, and not only did it wave a flag, Uh, majestically, shall we say, Uh, when someone didn't obey the flag, old Chip would lean over that flag stand, (laughs) and the car came by and shake his fist
0: at him. Oh, yeah. In this clip, Chip talked about the importance of getting this race in because the weather was not good the morning of race day. And it was kind of iffy whether or not NASCAR was going to get the race in. And Bill France Sr. in the driver's meeting said, hey, we've got one chance at this. Go out there, you race hard, but don't do anything stupid and cause this race to run long, and we lose our TV window. Exactly, and the track
2: was dry, but the infield was not. It was very, very muddy, and that played a role
0: in the race. Steve, how much doubt was there that morning whether or not they'd get the race in?
2: Well, there was some, but I don't remember everybody really fretting about it. I mean, the weather reports we were getting were saying there may be some rain later on, but it appears like the race is going to get in. So we held to that belief that it would happen.
0: So the race is run, and I don't know, midway through the race at some point, Cale Yarborough, Donnie Allison, and Bobby Allison crash on the backstretch. In the mud. In the mud. Bobby winds up losing a lap or two, and I think both Cale and Donnie did as well, but they came back to regain their laps. Right. And who's racing on the last lap? Cale Yarbrough, Donnie, and Donnie Allison. Donnie Allison. And
2: what a last lap it was. Going down the back stretch, they were beating and banging, hitting each other pretty hard. Both of them went high to the wall on the third turn and slid back down into that messy infield. And the guy behind them, watching all this happen, all of a sudden had the lead. And that was Richard Petty, who won that race.
0: I'm going to put you on the spot. Who is most culpable for that incident on the last lap?
2: Well, I can tell you what NASCAR said. They first blamed Donnie Allison for it.
0: Well, he was driving Kale to the infield. He was taking Kale. And he was blocking is
2: what he was
0: doing. <laughs> he was taking Kale to the infield to get a hot dog. <laughs>
2: Kale was not going to put up, with it turned right back into him.
0: Yeah. So if you
2: ask me, that was a racing mistake, but I don't really believe that any one driver was at fault in a deliberate sense.
0: Now, the March 1, 1979 issue carried coverage. Of this race, and that says something right there because that's what more than a week after the race. Because at that time, Grand National Scene printed every other week, yeah. So it was biweekly. So this was not immediate coverage. This comes out more than a week after the race. But the headline on the race lead, <laughs> I, I guess finesse wasn't exactly a strong suit. it's seemed back then, but it says <laughs> Petty backs into Daytona 500. <laughs> I- I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) But that was Richard Petty's first win in 45 races, going back to the 1977 Firecracker 400 that was also at Daytona.
2: And an interesting thing about that race that not a lot of people know about is that Richard underwent surgery over the winter for ulcers, and 40% of his stomach was removed. And doctors told him, you're not going to race for quite a while. Well, he went to Riverside. Start of the season.
0: Richard said, you want to bet?
2: And then he (laughs) won the Daytona, and he was, you know, running well enough to win. Kale, Bobby, and Donnie
0: were each fined $6,000. Correct. After serving probation, NASCAR returned the prize money, which didn't quite even up. To this day, Bobby Allison claims that he still owed (laughs) $2,000.
2: Well, I can tell you uh, something about that. That was the first time uh, a large group of riders— decided to stay in Daytona on the Monday after 500. And we staked out Bill Francis' office. Did you really? Yes, we did. We are going to be determined to get what the ruling was going to be as quick as we could get it. And Bill was doing a very good job of investigating the race because one of the guys who was a track worker who can be seen in the video charging in, trying to break up Bobby and Kale in that fistfight that went on in the third term, he is sitting outside of Bill Francis' office when we show up, and he looks like a deer in the headlights. He is scared to death. Bill had called him up there to get his side of the story. I saw that, several of us saw that, and made none of it and tried to talk to him. But once he left the office, he was out of there pretty fast. I have seen the video of that fight. I've seen several pictures of that fight, and I dare say many fans have too. And if you'll notice, the most Printed and most seen photo doesn't show Kale knocking the hell out of anybody. It shows him falling backward as Bobby grabs a hold of his leg, had and, him
0: walk like and, a wishbone. Exactly.
2: <laughs> but Kale may have gotten a punch or two in, but but uh, well, let's put it this way: it wasn't much of a fight.
0: <laughs> Steve, <laughs> you're talking sacrilege because to hear many people tell the story, this was a bloodbath. This uh, was mixed martial arts, uh, championship bout, bloody everything. Uh,
2: let's put it this way. As time has passed, that fight has gotten much more meaner and stronger than it really was.
0: So as things have a way of typically happening in NASCAR, who wins the very next race at Rockingham? Bobby Allison. But that's not the story. The story is Cale and Donnie wreck again. Again. Yeah. again. And not only do they collect themselves, they collect... Daryl Waltrip <laughs> and Richard Petty. It is on after that. You know, I thought it was funny because Kel and Donnie both said, it was just racing. It was just racing. Yeah. <laughs> and in a way it was. Yeah, they didn't want to get suspended. So Daryl Waltrip is not on probation. So he's free to speak his mind. In the March 15th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene, Daryl says they didn't just bump. Kale hit him so hard, he went over his hood. I just hope somebody saw it as good as I did. It was totally effing stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Fendi Gerald to me. Man, but he it, does have a point. And Richard also is pretty upset after the race because he says, NASCAR can't afford to lose STP, Bush Beer, Hawaiian Tropic, and Purilator. And they can't afford to lose the drivers and cars. What worries me is that there are some drivers who have been paying attention. They have seen two wrecks, and nothing has really happened. They may figure they can try something, and nothing will be done.
2: That's somewhat of a logical conclusion. Oh, yeah. You have to think that NASCAR's reactions aren't that severe as to what is going on. Somebody has kind of in the back of their head that I can go out here and try something and make myself win a race that wouldn't be kosher, shall we say, But I don't think NASCAR is going to do anything
0: about it. Well, Kale responds to what Richard's saying by dubbing him Jaws (laughs) 2.
2: Jaws 1 is Daryl.
0: Yeah, Daryl is Jaws 1. He'd been dubbed that a couple of years before at Darlington. But this is some bickering that goes on here between some of the absolute legends of this sport. Right. And Richard responds to Kale by saying, I consider the source it came from. Kale hasn't done anything that I'm jealous of. I'm going to let them do the talking.
2: <laughs> and, you know, that's a very reasonable statement coming from Richard, who among this entire group is probably the most diplomatic.
0: You guys got good copy for a long time out of that race.
2: Absolutely.
0: After Rockingham, the story is still not over because in the April 5th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene, Kell and his lawyer are reported to be angry and very concerned about stories that appeared in Sports Illustrated and Newsweek. In Sports Illustrated, Kale had been quoted as saying, I knocked the hell out of him, referring to Donnie Allison. But Kale insists that he did say, I knocked the hell out of him, but he says that he was referring to the fight after the race where he and Bobby were kind of in that scrape. Kale was also spun out about a caption in Newsweek that said Kale was meaner than a junkyard dog. <laughs> Most guys would like that. The long and short of it is that December 6th, December 6th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene, it's reported that Kale has filed suit against Newsweek and another magazine, Look Magazine, for libel. Yeah, no. And that something was going to be filed against Sports Illustrated. Didn't Nothing
2: it? came of any of that. As in fact, I dare say it was more talk than it was any action.
0: So, Steve, hopefully that's some background that people don't really think of when they think of the 1979 Daytona 500. And that's what I love about doing this podcast because everybody knows the basics of the 1979 Daytona 500. It was the first 500 mile race, ran. Flag to flag, live on TV. They know that Kale and Donnie wrecked on the last lap. They know that Richard Petty won the race. They know it was a very famous race. But you know the six thousand dollar fine, and Bobby claiming that NASCAR still owes him two thousand bucks, and certainly the lawsuits yeah. that Kale threatened, threatened. if not actually followed through on after the race, those are details that people don't know and that we kind of bring to light.
2: Well, you consider that 79 500 and how it ended, and you consider that the drivers involved continued their squabble thereafter, which gave the press more great copy. The attention given to NASCAR during that time was perhaps greater than it ever had received. And that's the key behind the 1979 500. As many people who saw that race and saw what was going on in NASCAR and liked the drama and the excitement and the aftermath started paying more attention to NASCAR. And the seeds were planted for the sport to grow by more television, namely the coming of the cable channels that needed content and knew full well what CBS had done at Daytona. That, I think, is where we see the seeds of NASCAR's growth throughout the eighties and even the
0: nineties. Steve, before we close out this episode, I do want to discuss something with you. You had a press conference in the media room after you received your Squire Hall award Friday night and you started naming staff members. You named Deb You named Bob Pockrish, you named Jeff Gluck, Mark Ashenfelter, you named the janitor, you named (laughs) the cafeteria worker. All right. Where's where's your podcast host? I saw you in the back
2: of the room waving your hands. (laughs) (laughs) And so I said, oh, yeah. And there was Rick and He's back there waving his arms. I thought I was going to have to stand on my head to get a mention. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I didn't forget you.
0: Listeners, you see what I have to put up with. (laughs) If you have any questions or comments, email us at scenevault at yahoo.com. Show us some love on Patreon, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. And also PayPal. PayPal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Any amount would help. I truly do appreciate it. And Steve, you and I got some news this morning. Now we can't say what it is yet. All right. But I cannot wait. shout it from the rooftops
2: it's it's going to be good it's going to be very good and if you are a listener to this show and like what you hear about nascar's past you are going to really enjoy this announcement
0: stay tuned